the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't usually have a title for my sermons, but I've got one today. It's Thirst. And there are perhaps fewer stronger demands which the body can make on us than thirst. Now, we've all felt thirsty, whether it's on the beach on a hot day after a dip in the salty ocean, or whether um, cocktail hour approaches after a long day, um, or any number of other occasions. But this is thirst in its lightest mode. Uh, Real thirst is far more dramatic. And I remember two experiences from my younger years which brought both kind of thirsts home to me. Uh, First, I was working on a farm during haymaking, which is dry and dusty work, especially under the hot sun. I had a thirst on me which was ready to kill a couple of pints, just to get started, uh, uh, the minute I got to the pub with my pay. The farmer's wife, however, brought out a pitcher of lemonade and then a pot of tea and some sandwiches. This was very nice of her and certainly dampened my thirst, saved me some money, and spared me a hangover. I was, however, in my youthful folly, a bit disappointed about losing that great thirst. Second, when I was on my first 72-hour practical training exercise as an officer candidate on a dry moorland, our section missed the water delivery every time, and our canteens were empty by the second day. And so at the end of the third day, um, the sense of thirst was far keener and far more insistent. I was no longer thinking of lemonade or beer. All I could think of was water. When the exercise ended, we went into camp where the water tender was being drained. The spigots were all open, water running on the ground. We rushed over and put some in our canteens and drank some with our hands. And of course got yelled at, who gave you Yob's permission to do that? The military, they're pouring it on the ground and giving us grief for, for, for having some for ourselves. In our passage from Exodus, we find Moses, and God for that matter, facing a mutiny, yet again facing a mutiny from the chosen people. This time, of course, it's give us water. Why do we ever leave Egypt? We hate it out here. We'd rather be slaves. And the first sign of trouble then, our day after the canteens ran dry and they start whining. And as happened throughout the Exodus journey, uh, Moses goes and has a chat with God, and um, you've got to help me out here. And God also seems to wonder why he'd bother choosing this people in the first place. Uh, tells Moses to hang in there, and he'll do what he can. In this case, he promised to stand on top of a rock at Horeb, which Moses is to strike with his special staff. And he does, and water flows. And for a few more days, until the next occasion for complaint, the chosen people go along with the program. Now, as as an aside, if you think about hitting a rock and water coming out, it doesn't seem like a likely sort of thing. But my school chaplain told me a story from the First World War about some British Tommies slackly digging a trench in Mesopotamia, a place now called Iraq. Uh, Their sergeant yelled at them, you call that digging, put your backs into it. And came over to give the two or three quick shovel thrusts that the sergeants do. And crack, the shovel hit a limestone boulder and water poured out. It's actually a geological uh, feature of the area. 
Now, of course, the Hebrews' thirst for water was stronger than it was for freedom or for the journey with God. And God took notice of that and promised himself, as we read at the end of Psalm 95, that this generation would not enter the promised land. Some of you will remember singing the Vanity from Morning Prayer, which is part of Psalm 95. When I grew up in, in England, we had to, in Britain, we had to do the whole thing, including this nasty bit with God, you know, keep keeping us out of the promised land until the next generation. Um, in the 1928 prayer book, the last verses expressing the divine displeasure were snipped off and replaced with some more uplifting verses from Psalm 96. Uh, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let the whole earth stand in awe of him. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth with righteousness, to judge the world and the peoples with his truth. That's much nicer than saying, you bad luck. <laughs> now, we can ask ourselves what makes us really thirsty too. Um, is it the desire for a lemonade or a cocktail or even plain water when we feel the physical tug? Or is it the thirst for something more powerful? And several images of thirst are addressed in the gospel for today, which was a long one, and my sermon is longer than it usually is, so just bear with me. Uh, first, Jesus The fountain of life is physically thirsty. Which reminds us that in his humanity, he was fully human just as we are. But what uh, happened next shows how much broader his humanity is uh, than the general run of existence. Where people are fenced in by our, our prejudices and our preconceptions. He is on the edge of a Samaritan village and he needs a drink. He has no goatskin water bag to drop down into this Samaritan well, and probably a Jew wouldn't want to drink out of a Samaritan well anyway. The Samaritans, as you know, were Hebrew peoples who got left behind after the great um, Babylonian captivity and were sort of substandard, um, you know, um, uh, children of Abraham. And he then does what no Jewish man would do. He talks to a strange woman and... um, And then a Samaritan at that. And probably it's thought even among the Samaritans she is a scandal. So here she is trying to avoid being seen. She's out in the heat of the day when the other women would have drawn their water in in the cool of the morning, had their conversation and then gone home. And uh, she's coming out trying not to be seen. But there's somebody standing by the well and not just someone but a man. And not just a man but a Jewish man. And she is startled to see him there, and even more so when he speaks to her, saying, give me a drink. Uh, This breaks a lot of boundaries and ancient taboos. Uh, But she's thirsty, and he's thirsty, and she has a bucket. And there's the well of, uh, of their mutual ancestor, Jacob. And Jesus doesn't look down upon her as others would do, as a woman in that culture and age, as a Samaritan, for goodness sake, um, or as someone whose life has gone very wrong. And somehow he sees this. He, he intuits or uh, um, knows her brokenness. Uh, but he instead acknowledges his own brokenness. He's tired. He's thirsty. 
And he will be thirsty again in the physical sense, don't we? For among his very last words on the, on the cross are, I thirst. I thirst, yeah. But Jesus also had a deeper thirst, and his thirst is a thirst for God's peace, uh, for justice and for healing, for dignity and respect for all people, all people, including the sad Samaritan woman, who's known no respect, perhaps, but she does know that one day the world will change when Messiah comes, and of all people, Jesus reveals himself to her and touches her life. He speaks to her then of another kind of water, and at first she misunderstands um, an automatic way of getting water. Some Russian peasant soldiers did this when they invaded Austria in 1914. Um, they saw faucets attached to farm buildings, and some of them ripped the faucets off, so, uh, the faucets, the faucets off, so they could take them home and stick them on their own walls and have water. <laughs> uh, but then she starts to get the idea, and then her heart is turned by this encounter. Now, when his disciples return with lunch, they appeared horrified that Jesus has compromised himself by talking with a Samaritan woman in broad daylight. And while Jesus tries to help the disciples see that this is the kind of life of risk and ministry to which he's calling them as well, uh, the woman runs off in excitement, leaving her bucket behind. She doesn't need it anymore. She's living water dwell welling up inside of her. Jesus entrusted her with his needs, his exhaustion, and his thirst. And Jesus showed himself to her in spite of all that he knew about her. Overcoming her shame, she ran with excitement to those who probably spent a lot of time gossiping about her behind her back and shared the powerful experience of this encounter with a man, probably unlike all the other men she'd known, all the ones who'd left or betrayed or misused her. She had had a chance encounter, and it transformed her life. Gordon Cosby, who co-founded Church of the Savior in Washington, once spoke of, uh, of an encounter with Jesus such as this one, saying... I've discovered that commitment and discipline are the absolute essentials for any spiritual power. I do not mean a general commitment or general discipline. I mean a definite commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a commitment to a person, not a commitment to a cause. Not a commitment to a principle of love. This is a commitment to a living person. And... We have to look at it. It wasn't fine ideas that touched the Samaritan woman. It was the thirsty man sitting by Jacob's well who spoke to her. It wasn't a principle that rebuked his disciples for their stiffness and their prejudice. It was their teacher and friend, Jesus. And it's not some general theory of God or of goodness which asks us to remember him, to love one another as he loved uh, his own, and to share our lives with him, with one another, and with the world as he did. And it is Jesus who is asking this of us. It is sadly too easy to slip away from ideas, and from principles, and from theoretical goodness. Um, I had a theoretical diet that was going to make me lose theoretical weight. <laughs> and I slipped away from that theory back into being the slob that I, <laughs> that I was before. But it's much harder 
to slip away from a relationship and a commitment to a real person. And the tricky thing about Christianity is that it is a real person who is extending himself to us through the ages. Uh, through the ages for sure, but right now in fact, who ask us to make a commitment to him. And Jesus is still thirsty. He's thirsty for all that needs to be done in the world in the name of love. And um, as we come to the well week after week to try to satisfy our own spiritual thirst, so may we also know that Jesus is sitting right there beside that well. Um, He's there today. Um, He's weary. He has a thirst for God, for justice, and for peace. And he asks us to help him slake that thirst, to give him a drink, to share the drink ourselves, and to um, share that drink with others. And what shall we do? As always, it's time to lay aside the petty cares and concerns that so often take up the attention and energy of his followers, as it did at the well in Samaria when the disciples muttered and speculated. It's time to try to drink deeply of the living waters ourselves and then to carry it to a world that does not even know how thirsty it is. Amen.